So America's presidential election year is underway. The first primary results are in, and many of us are absolutely dreading the long campaign and the likely results. Which is why, Richard, I'm going to give you a 20-minute disposition on what's wrong with both political parties <laughs> in this. No, actually, I'm not going to do that. Instead, we're going to step back from our immediate, somewhat fraught moment to consider the wisdom of the past and why we need it to navigate our confused times and make sense of our place in the world. That sounds refreshing, Jim. Ideas for everyone, why we need liberal education, how it might make us happier and have a greater sense of purpose. Roosevelt Montas. The point is not to make a living. The point is to know what to do with the life that you make. And the liberal education addresses itself to that question, not by giving us answers, but by equipping us to engage in that exploration for ourselves in a better way. Our show is about fixes. Yeah, how to make the world a better place. How, how do, do we, we fix, fix it? it? How do we fix it? What is the point of an education? Is it to learn skills that will help you get ahead in the workplace? Or is it to learn about the world and to think more deeply about your place in it? I'd argue that most of us need both. Today, we talk to an educator who thinks the great books, the ideas of Plato, Socrates, Shakespeare, Gandhi, and many others, aren't just for a few well-off students at elite colleges. They're for everybody. And he says encountering these thinkers when he was a poor immigrant teenager literally changed his life. Yeah, his life story we'll get into is, is fascinating. Roosevelt Montas is a senior lecturer at Columbia University and has long been involved in the school's famous core curriculum program that emphasizes reading classic works of philosophy and literature. Roosevelt is the author of the book Rescuing Socrates, How the Great Books Changed My Life and Why They Matter for a New Generation. We did this interview in the summer of 2022. It's one of my all-time favorite How Do We Fix It episodes, and we thought that it would be appropriate to share it again now. Let's start at the beginning. What is a liberal education? Why is it so important? A liberal education is an education that takes the condition of human freedom seriously. And that is a condition in which we get to decide how to organize our lives and pursue our own notion of the good. That's a pretty complex thing because we have to make decisions every day about what we eat, about what time we get up, about how we organize our day that are free decisions, but that have to be done with a view of one's ultimate good in mind. So a liberal education equips you to make those kinds of decisions, both for yourself, but also in the context of a democracy, in the context of a self-governing self community. That idea goes back to ancient Athens. So liberal education begins in kind of the first fully-fledged democracy in which uh, citizens had to make laws, had to hold political office, had to sit in juries. And the question came up, what kind of education will prepare an individual to engage in this project of collective self-governance? Well, you have to know a little bit about everything. You have to know about psychology and about religion and about military strategy and about the weather and about the economy and about history and about philosophy. So that kind of broad understanding of education that equips you 
for a life of freedom and self-determination. That's liberal education. You've been very involved in your career as a professor at Columbia in Columbia's famous core curriculum program that all freshmen take that introduces students to some of the great works of mostly Western culture, but also other intellectual traditions from around the world. Why is that program so important? This program, the core curriculum at Columbia, has been going on for a little over 100 years. Um, and it consists of two year-long courses in essentially the history of Western thought. Uh, one of the courses focuses on, on literature, poetry, fiction, et cetera, and the other course on, on philosophical classics. And then there are two other one-semester courses, one in music, one in art, and then a science course. So this, this, this set of courses forms, as its name suggests, the core of an undergraduate education. And it is the kind of embodiment of a commitment to liberal education, that is to the study of humanistic productions that form the foundation for further specialization. Um, why is it important? We as human beings are all caught in some basic fundamental dilemmas that we all have to solve. And those dilemmas stem directly from our condition of freedom, right? How do we relate to each other? What are my responsibilities to the other? How do I live with the consciousness of death? How do I find fulfillment and meaning in my life? Where do we come from? Kind of the big questions that we all in some way have to deal with. Well, the core curriculum is an organized way of exposing students to some of the important inquiries and reflections on these fundamental questions. The bet is that this kind of broad liberal thinking is actually going to make not only better professionals, but better citizens and better human beings. So instead of teaching students how to make a living, which is the point of many forms of higher education, a liberal education asks, what is that living for? Right? Exactly, exactly. The, the, the great African-American scholar W.E.B. Du Bois has a line in one of his essays from The Souls of Black Folk that captures this. He says that the true college will ever have one goal, not to earn meat, but to know the end and purpose of the life which meat sustains. And it's so elegant. The point is not to make a living. The point is to know what to do with the life that you make. And the liberal education addresses itself to that question, not by giving us answers, but by equipping us to engage in that exploration for ourselves in a better way. One of the points you make very movingly in the book is that a liberal education shouldn't just be something reserved for students who are have the great opportunity to go to elite colleges and universities. And your life story certainly uh, reflects that. You write, I landed at JFK International Airport with a head full of lice and a belly full of tropical parasites. Tell us about that. I came to the United States when I was 12 years old. Um, I came from the Dominican Republic, a tropical third world country, hence the tropical parasites. Um, and we were poor. I grew up in, in, a, in a small mountain town. My parents didn't go to college. My, my father didn't even go to high school. We, like many Dominicans who had a chance in the 80s, and, and it, it's, it's ongoing, there's a, still a, a huge immigration wave from the Dominican Republic to the U.S. My mother 
uh, came to the United States and then immediately brought my my older brother and I. Uh, we landed in Queens. My mother had at the time a minimum wage job. She soon lost that job uh, in a garment factory. So we were close to destitute and uh, just survived on um, the somewhat generous public assistance programs in New York City, the free public school, free meals at school, um, food stamp assistance, et cetera. I didn't speak English, uh, nor did my mother or brother. We did have some uh, kind of loose networks of, of other Dominicans who had migrated here that, that formed our community. But it was certainly a, pre- a very precarious and uh, kind of hand-to-mouth existence and marginal existence for a while. It is a an unlikely foundation from which to land, as I did a few years after my arrival here at Columbia um, for uh, an undergraduate education. And, and that trajectory really informs my view of liberal education and actually informs all of my scholarship and, and, and the way I, I interact with the world generally. Your life was a daily struggle. And now we're talking about great books and, and how they changed your life. So what's the connection? There is a kind of prevailing cultural attitude that liberal education, study of literature, study of philosophy, is really only appropriate and only matters to the elite, to the privileged. Uh, a kind of another way of pampering an already privileged class. And, and that is a really pernicious idea. Um, what I've discovered both from my own experience, but also from my work teaching um, liberal education and teaching, roughly speaking, the classics to students who like me come from low income backgrounds and are, are the first in the families to, to attend college. What I've discovered is that these works speak universally. That is that these works can empower um, individuals across the board, and that in fact, students who come from such backgrounds are the greatest beneficiaries of them. That kind of sometimes called useless knowledge are the most powerful tools that we have for social advancement and to empower individuals to be meaningful agents in our society. That is to empower individuals to take charge of their own futures and their own destinies. These are the tools of self-creation and these are the tools of advancement in our society. And we have a tradition of denying them to the people who most need them and instead channeling them to, to practical fields and more pragmatic learning. When you were in high school, you happened to find a very important book uh, on the top of a stack of trash near your family's apartment. You said it was like a genie conjured up from a lamp. What was that book and how did it affect your life? That book was a collection of dialogues from the last days of Socrates. And it was part of the um, a series published by Harvard University called the Harvard Universal Classics. Beautiful, beautiful books. And in fact, it was the, it was the physical beauty of the book that attracted me to it. My English wasn't, wasn't exactly up to par, but with the help of dictionaries and then Shortly after that, the help of a teacher at, at, at my high school that took an interest in me. Um, that book became really formative in my an emerging conception of myself as somebody who had a life of the mind, as somebody who cared about ideas and, and, and questions that far exceeded my own individual particular 
narrow circumstances. There's a lovely quote from Socrates, which says, the good life, the beautiful life, and the just life are the same. Is this part of what you're talking about? The good life, the beautiful life, and the just life, right? The true, the good, and the beautiful. Um, it's such a compelling vision that, that Socrates puts forth of what might call the unity of the virtues, that these things are, in fact, one. Um, and that they are the highest pursuits, the highest aspirations available to us as human beings. Young people live for this stuff. Young people live for a vision um, of the possibility of a morally coherent universe, a universe in which, in fact, the true, the good, and the beautiful are one. Um, this speaks to kind of our deepest, our deepest concerns and our deepest sense of, um, of our own existence in the world. And what about the way these things are discussed today? Those very ideas, you know, justice, is there such a thing as justice? Uh, the good, isn't that just kind of a subjective, socially constructed, historically contingent category? The beautiful, isn't that just um, individual preferences, usually class prejudices? We live in a world where these notions, the, their foundation, the anchoring of these notions has been brought into question. And one of the things that Socrates does is to put intellectual heft and philosophical backing to the notion, to the possibility that these things are actually real, that these things actually are available to us as individuals to experience intellectually and to uh, organize our lives around their pursuit. To me, the idea of a student getting the opportunity to study Socrates, St. Augustine, Freud, Gandhi. It just seems like such a wonderful opportunity for, for anyone. And yet this kind of education is under attack from a number of, of sides. In fact, you call the, the core curriculum uh, program at Columbia a relic. It's so rare uh, in higher education today. Why is this idea of a liberal education under attack? Um, that's a great question. Uh, and I should say that, that it is a real crisis and that it is largely an institutional crisis, that is liberal education within the university finds itself in essentially hostile territory. Well, one, there's a kind of big, broad cultural reason. Um, we live in a, in, a, in a capitalist society, in a market-driven society, in a society of kind of instant gratification, consumerism, where every value is reduced to its transactional monetary uh, form. And that is fundamentally at odds with the idea of, of liberal education, which is pursued not for any instrumental reason, but because it has an intrinsic value, because it is in itself worth pursuing, knowledge for its own sake. Sometimes I talk about it to students and to, and to people, and, and people just can't wrap their mind around it. It's like, yeah, but, but what for? But what is it good for? No, it's not good for anything. It's just good in itself. Wait, what? What does that even mean? So there is a there's the kind of cultural context that makes the idea of liberal education even hard to grasp. Then there are historical, specific historical institutional reasons. The main kind of structural feature of those reasons is the is the fact that the modern university is organized around specialized disciplines, and this has meant that the university today. Even in the deliberate arts, you know, you have the disciplines, you have art history and literature and philosophy um, and history. And each of these are specialized fields 
where at their highest levels of achievement are concerned with very narrow disciplinary questions. So that in the university, where is the place for liberal education? Uh, where is the place where you can pursue non-disciplinary, non-specialized kind of study that concerns the individual and the students merely by virtue of their condition of, as human beings? There's one more challenge to the tradition of liberal thought. In your book, you call it the postmodern current, a kind of wide-ranging critique of the idea of even in some ways the possibility of knowledge or the, the possibility of, of sharing ideas with some sort of common ground between people even of very different backgrounds. Tell us how that's affecting the academy today. Very much so. There is a kind of, really kind of an intellectual revolution that begins to question some of the uh, foundational notions of um, kind of the sacred cows of what, let's say, Western civilization, although it, it, it's broader than that. Um, you know, basic notions like virtue, truth, the possibility of knowledge. Um, there's a kind of whole metaphysical assault on the building blocks of uh, our stru structures of knowledge. It's very powerful and in some ways very liberatory and illuminating. And some of the important insights that, that it has yielded, for example, is, is it's take the whole field of post-colonial studies. Uh, one of whose um, uh, insights is, is, is to, to show the ways in which the narrative of humanizing, civilizing, enlightenment was used to in fact exploit dehumanize large parts of the globe very very powerful insights on the other hand it is um this kind of theoretical movement is largely destructive and in fact one of the names that it's commonly called is deconstruction um, it is a movement that dismantles and liberates and undermines but doesn't have much by way of positive rebuilding and in fact it's great danger is that what you end up with once you dismantle structures of discourses is a, is a naked reality of power. The only value in the end is power, justification of, of, of brutality and amoral behavior. But this paradigm, this kind of postmodern deconstructive paradigm that undermines or threatens to undermine the legitimacy of things like human flourishing and virtue and goodness and beauty, uh, ethics. Um, it's quite dominant within the academy. Roosevelt Montas speaking with us in 2022. This is How Do We Fix It? I'm Jim Meggs. And I'm Richard Davies. In the coming few months, some of our most compelling interviews and guests from nearly nine years. Can you believe it? Nine years of our podcast. That's pretty wild. We're always looking for ways to grow our audience. So if you enjoy our podcast and want to support us, the best thing you can do is go to the podcast app or platform of your choice and write a quick review. And please don't be shy with those stars. Yeah, five will always help us. Coming next, more of our interview and then a recommendation and conversation to round off the show. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices 
down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Have you ever Googled your own name? Prepare for a shock because your personal info, including addresses and phone numbers, is all out there. It's all harvested by data brokers and sold legally. Aura is a personal digital security service that scans the internet for your sensitive information and provides a full suite of privacy-enhancing tools. For a limited time, Aura is offering listeners a 14-day free trial at aura.com safety. That's A-U-R-A dot safety to learn more and activate the 14-day trial period. More about your personal story, Roosevelt. In New York, during the summer, you teach low-income high school students. You share insights from Plato's dialogues and and other books. Why? Uh, What's the value of that to them? So every summer, I've been doing this now for, I don't know, 12, 13 years. Um, I bring in a group of, of students from New York City. These are students who are from low-income households, the first in their families to attend college, wish to attend college. They are high school juniors. So it's the summer between junior and senior year. We have them live um, in Columbia dormitories, eat cafeteria food, and then take this intense seminar in which we read Plato, Aristotle, Thucydides, Locke, Hobbes, Rousseau. Very intensive. We, we, we meet every day for two hours. They read about 20 pages every night. They write every night. And something I've noticed over and over again is that many of these students come to, to the seminar having experienced the world as something that happens to them, having experienced themselves as passive recipients as, and many times victims of forces that they do not understand and cannot, and cannot intervene in. And even this program only lasts a month. By the end of the month, you you hear something different from the students. You hear them as um, empowered. You hear them um, debating political questions, thinking about civic engagement, thinking about the, themselves, not as individuals to whom things happen, but as individuals who can make things happen, individuals who can change their reality, but who can also change the social reality in which they live. This is profoundly transformative for the students. And uh, many of them end up end up going on to college and, and being civically involved, being student leaders, taking many humanities courses and philosophy courses that they might not have been interested in before. It, it, it primes them to experience college and their civic lives in an entirely different way. And this is the power of a liberal education. It is the power that transformed my life. It is uh, the power that I see every summer transforming the lives of other, other kids who in many ways resemble me when I encountered Socrates. We've been talking about the beauties of a liberal education in some ways in contrast to one that is more focused on transactional goals, getting into law school, becoming a doctor, or going to work in finance or something like that. But in some ways, they're not so far apart. Jim, I think this is a really important issue that that you bring up because a lot of people conflate the idea of a liberal education 
with the idea of a liberal arts major. The point is that whether you want to be a scientist or a businessman or a lawyer or a nurse or an engineer, that a liberal education be the foundation for that. For many of the students, as was the case for me, college is really a lifeline. College is a way out of poverty. College is a way not just for themselves, but for their families and their communities to kind of put out a tether into a broader, more secure, and more um, autonomous world. We cannot ask those students to put aside their aspirations for economic independence and, and instead study a field that has few job prospects. What we have to do is to make liberal education available to every student, regardless of what their specialty is going to be. Let's make liberal education part of that training. And part of that liberal education is that it helps students learn how to think, how to be curious, how to have meaning in their lives. That's crucial to democracy, isn't it? Indeed. If you are going to have a democracy, you need to have a population that is equipped with the capacities, the tools, personal capacities that make self-governance possible. And that is quite tricky. Um, self-governance, even at the individual level, even to govern ourselves as to what kind of diet we're going to keep. It really requires not just intellectual, but characterological development, character development. Well, a democracy is the same situation writ large. It requires a population that is capable of self-governance. And the way that you produce that population is with a kind of education called liberal education, a kind of education that is precisely oriented towards autonomy, towards individual self-governance. There is, I think, a very real and urgent threat that the kind of liberal education that I advocate retrenches to kind of being a province of, of just the privilege and the elites, the way it used to be. And one of, of the great achievements of, of American society has been precisely to make college education available to a wider and wider segment of the public. That expansion of access to higher education, including some liberal education, is the story of American higher education until recently, until the last maybe 20, 25 years in which things have begun to go into reverse uh, with more limited access. And that strikes me as a very serious and urgent threat in our society. Roosevelt Montas, thank you very much for joining us on How Do We Fix It? Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Did I get that Montas right? Is that you did. Good? You did. Very was good. That, bad? that was okay. No, that was excellent. That was excellent. Coming up next, our recommendation. Richard, what have you got for us this week? Well, this is not a weighty book or uh, an intellectual tome, but a TV show, an eight-part Anglo-Japanese thriller drama on Netflix. It's called Jiri Haji. I may have made a mess of the pronunciation, but this show is both fun and thrilling and at times surprisingly tender. The story involves two brothers, one, the older brother who mostly plays by the rules as a Tokyo detective, and his bad boy younger brother who is adored by his family and friends, but is also a gang member in Japan. Um, it is just so well acted and it is beautifully shot as well. That sounds great. Now on to our conversation. 
much of what Roosevelt Montas is saying, Jim, is let's get our humanity back. Let's get our curiosity back. That the people who he's criticizing, um, the postmodern thinkers, those who would emphasize oppression studies, may have some interesting criticisms. And he points out one, for instance, which is post-colonial studies that he's in favor of and, and sees some nourishment from, but they have nothing to put in the place of these great books, of this great teaching. And that's a pretty devastating criticism. Yeah, which he makes very gently, really, in his in his lovely kind of polite way. You know, you would say, what does this kind of broad-based, postmodern, deconstructionist, woke uh, worldview, what does it want to replace a, a a, an education in that includes the classics. What do they want to replace it with? They would say the purpose of an education is to train students to tear down oppressive structures of our society. But build back what? But I mean, first you've got to first you have to train people to recognize oppression and tear it down. There's that's no coincidence. It, it's called deconstruction or dismantling, dismantling oppression. And yes, it is empty, and it's and ultimately I think it is. Uh, it leads to a place in which we wind up dismantling the structures that make our civilization liberal in the broadest sense of the word, free, uh, that protects individual rights, protects the dignity of the individual. So that's why I just love this book so much, because he's arguing from a position of someone who came to this country very much from a marginalized background as an immigrant, didn't even speak English. And and he discovered in these traditions, and we call it Western civilization, it's not just Western. He includes Gandhi as a major part of his book, but a lot of the work that leads to the, the, the modern kind of intellectual infrastructure of independent thought did develop into in, primarily in the West, but it, it borrowed from Egyptian, North African traditions, uh, and, and other cultures, and today is employed around the world. This idea that Western thought is just something that, that you know, oppressive white people use is so insulting to people all over the world who are scientists and thinkers, you know, wherever they're from, they embrace and use these, uh, these ideas and these traditions. Jim, it really pains me to say this, but I agree with almost everything you said. <laughs> well, there's a first time for everything, Richard. <laughs> <laughs> it's How Do We Fix It? I'm Richard Davis. And I'm Jim Meggs. Thanks for joining us. Our producer is Miranda Schaefer. We're a production of Davies Content. We make podcasts for companies and nonprofits at DaviesContent.com.